2: Now, get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562 314 4603 for details.
3: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
1: what is crackalack and fellow thermonuclear afers i am damp valley coming at you with a solo medium-sized mailbag we call it i'm catching up on some questions that we had in our discord go join our discord for that um and i didn't put out a solicitation for this time because i'm actually presser time and don't want to spend eight hours on a don't have the not that i don't want to i just can't spend eight hours on a mailbag as I do normally, yes, eight hours is hyperbole. So we're going to get to a few questions that strays that I missed, and th- that's a plug. Look, join our Discord. You can ask questions too, and and I will answer them, or you can give thoughts, and I will respond to them. Uh, but let's look. Let's let's just dive right in here. So we'll begin with Maddie L had a couple questions, bookkeeping questions. Why question number one? Why do sign in trades happen? This is a good question, uh, and we've had answers in the Discord, but for other listeners who are not in the Discord and also defeats the purpose of, you know, we have responses to every mailbag question. If they're I'm not going to answer them, what's the point? Uh, however, signing trades mostly happen because teams, or a player and team, want to link up who are over the cap. Uh, like, where, let's just use as an example, this upcoming summer, I don't think he's going to leave Paul George, but he wants to go to the Knicks. He can't just sign with the Knicks unless he's going to take a massive pay cut under his max, if you do a sign and trade, it gives you the ability to get your max money and go to a team that doesn't have the cap space to sign you outright. They used to be more appealing in general because in the previous CBA you could get the full amount of years and raises. That has since been changed to where sign and trades cannot be more than 4 years long and they have to be at least 3 seasons long, but there is a loophole to that. We'll get to it in a minute. Um but they can only be up to 4 seasons and you get 5% raises instead of 8% raises, where if you resign with your current team, you could, depending on how old you are, you could sign a five-year deal um, with up to 8% raises. I think in George's case, that's not actually an issue because I think five would uh, conflict with the over-38 rule. That's why sign and trades generally happen, though. Uh, they, they are a way for a team to capitalize on moving a player without losing him for nothing, but you need the player's cooperation. And it's a lot harder to get a player's cooperation than a team's cooperation because if you're if if you're Paul George and you're saying well I'm going to go here and I'm willing to pay like play for less uh, the the clippers should trade you because they should try and capitalize on your departure whereas if you're a team that's like well I just want to like this player is a free agent let's use PJ Washington that he was a bad example this summer um if you use if you want to get rid of the player because you want to go in a different direction you need their cooperation to where they're going to go and they might not want to go to that team that you're talking to that's going to give you the value for the player that you want. And so sign and trades are normally, I would say, especially now, they would be more dictated by a player wanting to go to a different team and then his incumbent team facilitating that. Now, you can as a rule of a sign and trade, only the first year salary needs to be guaranteed. And so if you're trying to if you're trying to as a team, let's say I don't fucking know. Let's say, let's say the Knicks again. Let's just keep using the Knicks here. You, well, they don't have a free agent. Well, yeah. Let's say that you want to trade Isaiah Hartenstein and use him that money or uh, OG Ananobi. Let's say you want to trade OG Ananobi to get a, a different type of, of package, but OG Ananobi isn't per se a great player or player X is not a great player and they're not going to care where they go as long as they get paid. You can inflate someone's salary over that deal so that it helps you get to the necessary money matching. If you were the Knicks and wanted to acquire and you had a free agent um, and you had their bird rights and you are able to sign them, maybe it's a, let's say they're like a $7 million a year player and you're willing to pay them like 12 or $14 million a year. You get into the issue of base year compensation sometimes, but you can drum up the amount of money matching you're sending out in a trade if your if the other team is interested more so in, well, we'll take on this one year inflated salary because you're sending us so much draft equity, maybe another player that we like, and our player wants to go to you anyway. So that's another reason why sign and trades can happen. It just doesn't tend to that, that scenario I lay out, it doesn't happen as much. I do think in part, because during the off season, um, th- you're, like you're looking at the cap space guys as more major players and then seldom if it's a player who's worth a damn in that scenario, Uh, you're not going to need to go to a team to get the assets required. Uh, If that player that you're trading is under contract, you're not going to need to go to uh, a team that needs to actually come up with money matching to get like the necessary return. But in theory, that's what you could do is you can sign and trade a player only guarantee the first year of his deal at an inflated rate so that it helps you as the team over the cap match salaries for another player that you're trying to acquire. Maddie also asked, "How do pick swaps work? Maybe it's been explained, but I've missed it. And just for clarification, because I think it was mentioned on the most recent podcast, uh, which was well, we've been we've been putting out the content. So we were on vacation, but the content continued to come out. And just for clarification, because I think it was mentioned on the most recent pod. Why do teams, example, the Lakers, go from having not many to three first round picks? To trade after the draft sorry if you did explain this was doing was dodging potholes at the time uh well one i hope you successfully dodged those potholes and are not trapped in them let's start with the pick swaps so pick swap works this way um let's use the the thunder and the mavericks as an example because as part of the trade uh the the thunder did something unique in the sense that at the trade deadline uh, they sent uh, the mavericks a 2024 it was a i think it was like the They sent out a 2024 first round pick in exchange for 2028 swap rights with the Dallas Mavericks and the swap rights. I mean, that trade was unique for like way like a, like a bunch of different reasons because you, the Thunder have done it before, but you seldom see a team trade an actual first round pick to get a swap. But when you have so many first round picks like the Thunder, um, rather than have a bottom five first round pick, do you want to, you know, sort of kick the can and say, well, we might prefer Dallas's 2028 first round pick. Now here's how the swap would work. If in 2028, the thunder end up with the number 19 pick, but the Dallas Mavericks have any pick like that comes beforehand. It could be number 18. It could be number four. It could be number 12. Oklahoma city will have the right to swap its first round pick. So number 19 with whatever the Mavericks have. So you're going to exercise that swap if the Mavericks have a better pick than you, as the Thunder. Now there are sometimes protections on this. We did a, I think we did a segment where we explained protections. We've seen swaps have um, protections on it. There, the Celtics owe a pick swap to the Spurs. I think that's also in 2028, maybe that's 2029, whatever it is. It's top one protected. And so if if the Celtics end up with the first overall pick, the spur and the Spurs have number five or fifteen, they can't swap because of that top one protection. But in this case, if the Thunder have number 19 and the Mavericks have numbers one through 18, because I haven't seen any protections on it, um, the Thunder get to swap and they will take the Mavericks pick while sending the Mavericks their own pick. So the Mavericks would have number 19, the Thunder would have the Mavericks pick. Now, if the Mavericks end up with the 22nd pick and the Thunder have the 19th pick, you don't exercise that swap because you have the better pick as the Thunder. that like that's pretty like that's pretty straightforward for the most part where it gets interesting is when you're the thunder and you have multiple first round picks in that year and so let's just say the thunder have like three different four different first like first round picks in 2028 there does need to be like there can be language in the trade where it's let's say in 2028 the thunder have their pick And they have a Houston pick and they have a Clippers pick. I don't like, I'm not even, this doesn't line up. Let's just say they have those three picks. There can be language in the trade that says, well, we're only swapping. You can only swap us with your own pick, but you could, in theory, if the trade allows it, the Thunder could use any of the first round picks they own to swap. And so just as a scenario, let's say the Thunder own their own pick that ends up at number that ends up at number 12. And then they own Houston's first round pick. Which ends up at number fifteen. And then they own uh, then they own uh, the Clippers' first round pick, which ends up at number twenty three. And then you have the Mavericks pick in two thousand and twenty eight that comes in at number fifteen. Well, the Thunder, as a lottery team in that scenario, you're not going to swap your own pick. but could you you could swap the Clippers pick if that trade allows it with a number twenty one pick for that? And so when a team has multiple first round picks, um, the language of the trade does matter there. I think that this might be just a straight up swap between Dallas and OKC, but we would have to see Um, the swap in itself, though, is just pretty straightforward. If that other team's pick is better than the one you're holding, you just get to swap it. And so that's why swaps are appealing. They seldom do get exercised, but it does happen. And I would hazard we're getting into a point where so many long distance swaps have been traded by Cleveland, Cleveland, by Minnesota, by, by Houston, by Brooklyn, by the Clippers that we're going to see some pretty, I'm going to guess at some point, we're going to see some pretty tasty, uh, picks get swapped. And I'm wondering if that forces teams to kind of recalibrate how they're going about trading these, these distant first round picks.
3: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
1: 18 plus. The the second part of this question from Matty L was, why do teams go from having not so many picks to having three first round picks? And so with the Lakers are a good example. At the trade deadline, they could have promised one first round pick in 2029. Or it could have been in 2031. But in 2029, let's say. Uh, because of the because of the Steppian rule, you can't be without first round picks in consecutive years. And so in theory, let's just say the Lakers wanted to have traded 2028 and 2029. Well, you can't do that because then you would be without a first-round pick in two consecutive drafts. And that's why you couldn't trade like more than one first-round pick at this trade deadline. Is that they owe their 2027 pick to utah there's some protection on it they have this year's pick goes to the pelicans with a right to defer to 2025 and i know this can get a little confusing but that means you can't trade 2026 because there's a chance right now without knowing what the pelicans are going to do that you could be without a 2025 and 2026 second round uh first round pick in that scenario now future drafts only apply to drafts that have not taken place yet that disappears when you get to draft night. And so in the Lakers case. It, it, it essentially disappears. It functionally. Technically disappears. Once the league calendar resets. So when you get to draft night. And you're the Lakers. You now know what New Orleans is going to do. And so. Let's just say they elect to defer. So they're going to take. Your 2025. Pick. You have your 2024 pick that you can actually, you select a player, you trade that player before he's ever played a game. That counts as that technically counts as one first round pick, especially if you've agreed to the terms of the team you're trading him to winds up making that pick. You you're picking the player that they want essentially. So now you trade your 2024, you trade your 2029. That was the pick you already had open. And now, because you can only trade picks seven years out in advance. 2031 has now opened up because that 2024 draft is over. And so now you've gone from only having 2029 to having 2031 and then 2024, 2025. It doesn't actually matter what the Pelicans do. If the Pelicans keep 2024, the Lakers can go ahead and trade. You you could argue that mystery boxes are more valuable. So you can make the argument that, having the 2025 pick that hasn't turned into a player yet is more valuable than 2024. But regardless, as of draft night, whatever the Pelicans do, you can either trade this year's draft pick as the actual player or next year's draft pick on top of that 2029 pick and the 2031 pick because that's seven drafts away. And as of right now, that would have been more than seven drafts out because we would have 2024, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, that's eight. Simple math right there. Hopefully that answers your questions without confusing the fuck out of you, Matty L. Everything Blacks, this is this is a good one. That's something or that's stupid or that's something stupid. Wow. Um, technical fouls should count as personal fouls. And he clarified that he was referring that this is how FIBA did it. And so he's, not, he's saying that you don't get rid of the free throws that come with technical fouls what you're saying is you have this technical if you get a technical you would all, a second technical you would also get ejected but like let's say you have one technical foul it also counts as a personal foul and so you've gotten one technical and it counts towards your your total fouls to where six and you're fouled out that technical foul is a part of it where in theory you could have five personal fouls and a technical foul and still be in the game that would eradicate this i would do it because as everything Black's pointed out, it kind of, you know, the double technical, if they're gonna cancel, like if you look at that as sort of canceling each other out, um, it still counts towards your personal foul tally. Um, you could also go this way and say, should it count towards the team's total quarter foul tallies? Um, but I like the idea of it counting as a personal foul because maybe it dissuades players from knowing you know, you could get and If you get called for a foul, and you want to argue it and you're fine getting it upgraded to a technical because it doesn't really, yeah, you give up the free throw, but it doesn't do anything to yeah, put you one technical away from getting ejected, but it doesn't impact your ability to use the rest of your fouls. I'm all for the gamesmanship of let's, I think that would probably cut down on like the amount of complaining after personal fouls were given out at the bare minimum. Maybe it wouldn't, uh, but that'd be something I would absolutely. Um, that I would absolutely look into. Rubik scale ass, and this might've been a question, part of a larger discussion that was taking place in the mailbag section of discord. Why is it when a front office puts together a squad that consists of three very good players and some decent specialists in supporting roles, be it through trade or through free agency, we applaud that front office. Yet when the players themselves seek to have the same agency to form a team, we dub them as snakes, gold diggers, and ring chasers. Isn't that why every, isn't that what every franchise is doing ring chasing? I could spend an entire podcast on this question. Um, There definitely is a discrepancy between how these are viewed. And there's like the, the way that people are pro billionaire owners, or at least evaluate their teams through that lens versus as the players. That's weird. But I also think it's something, a trend that's kind of, not that it's not that it's been eradicated, but it definitely has shifted because we have more people who are fans of players than just teams. And so a big part of this is you're rooting for a team. And so when a player leaves, like you're just automatically going to side with that team. And so if it's, Oh, Kevin, let's use just Kevin Durant as an example. If you're a fan of the thunder rather than Kevin Durant, you're going to be, well, he didn't want to do the work in OKC or he took the easy way out. And that's where that view is born from. Now, I think the other part of it is, I mean, there's some uncomfortable elements too is are Is there a racial component to it? Because this league is largely a a black league with a ton of um, people of color in it. And is that going to skew some of the coverage? Hell fucking yes. It's going to, and that's wrong. So there could be that element of it as well. The other thing here though, too, is, and this is probably more of a problem with the discourse championship counts Like we're all about trying to distill down player values to this raw data. And it goes, there's going to be box score numbers. It's all-star selections. It's all NBA bids. And then it's, well, how many rings did this superstar win? And when you're going to judge a player's legacy based off how many rings they win, well, it makes sense. They want to go. Kevin Durant want to go to the Warriors, win as many championships as possible. You also, people also want it to be hard not to be a given, especially the people who don't root for, let's use the the Kevin Durant era warriors. The fans of other 29 teams, they're going to prefer if it was harder or just say, well, he took the easy way out like that kind of turned the, you know, the, the warriors along with the cavaliers of that era turned, it felt like every postseason into just sort of this inevitability. And so that's just going to rub fans of other teams and media members the wrong way. They want it to be hard, whether that's fair or not. There is something to the effect of yes, a player earns their agency and they tough it out in let's just use Kevin Rand in Oklahoma city for seven and nine years. However long it was at that point, they structured their contract accordingly. They earned the right to go into free agency, sign with whomever they pleased the league facilitated that with that huge salary uh, cap jump this year. But this even gets into, you know, trade demands with players. Um, if they've been with a certain team for as long and they're coming up on the final year of their deal, it's well within their right to say, Hey, I'm going to leave after next summer. You should move me. Um, before I, I leave you with absolutely nothing, um, so they earned that right. But there's something it's a you, you start to look at it's not just the number of rings, but the level of difficulty behind them. And there are a few factors that go into that. The two that probably stand out is, well, one, who did you play? Who did you go through? That's why some people have choose last year as an example, think that the nuggets had like an easy road. And I think maybe the road was easy or than, Others would have than other years, but I actually think it was because the Nuggets kind of walked through their playoff bracket because they were the only great team in the Western conference last year. And now there might be a couple of great teams, Um, but the Nuggets were great. And so that's why they made other not great teams. Look, not so great. Go figure. Um, The other thing is you're going to ascribe more meaning. And I, I don't know whether this is right or wrong. I do think there is a level of correctness to it. If Kevin Durant had won in Oklahoma City, it would have meant more because he was there longer and he did it in a market that wasn't conducive or in a position to get these super big names. Whereas maybe you didn't consider Golden State a glamour franchise before Steph Curry became Steph Curry and Draymond Green popped. It doesn't matter. They became the Warriors and were a team that could become this destination. Even though the Bulls have not been a great team in quite some time and there's not really like a level of you call them a flagship franchise, but they're not treated as such nationally. You look at these markets and it's, oh, you could get why a player would want to go to New York or Los Angeles, even if they've been bad in the past. Maybe not Chicago so much. They could be an exception. That comes back to you know people rooting for players over teams. Uh, And I don't really know if that's the majority rule, by the way. That opens up a whole different separate issue. Uh, But when you're looking at why like how a ring would be harder. Do I think it would have been harder for Kevin Durant to win in Oklahoma city because of the small market limitations. I'm not talking about the James Harden trade specifically, though that would have been part of it, but you were there for longer. You're in a market that it's harder to attract talent. You don't already have. I think that's the best way to phrase it because you can draft talent and retain talent. I actually think that's pretty easy. But Look at how many years the blazers had with Damian. Look at how many years Oklahoma city had with Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook. So, like you get, like you can get a decade or more with these players. Talent retention doesn't necessarily seem to be the issue, it's talent acquisition outside of the draft. So, to have done it in a market with a team that wasn't in a position or had those intrinsic advantages, it just in theory makes it tougher. And also because you went through more failures with that core, you lost in 2012. You went through the James Harden trade. You went through the Serge Ibaka trade. You dealt with the Russell Westbrook injuries as opposed to going to a Warriors team. There's no, I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with that, but I do think you need to be prepared to accept. There's some discourse on it. That would be toxic by saying the rings don't count or Kevin Durant's a coward. That is wrong. I'll make that clear. But for to say that Kevin Durant's titles, two championship rings mean less than the one that Giannis won with Milwaukee, I think it's fair. And it's you don't want to that should not be the end all be all when talking about legacies. But I think it's fair to have that discussion and frame it in that way. Now, could Giannis have left if he didn't win that ring or if the, the Bucks don't trade for Drew Holiday? That's part of it too. Like you get into this, I've been here long enough, we can't win. Teams are getting ultimatums, they feel pressure. It just makes it harder than if you joined another team that either already had other superstars in place rather than getting them or in the Warriors case had both, which was the superstars in place and like championship equity, active championship equity, not just that they had won a title already, but that they were still the league's foremost contender, even though they had just lost in 2016. And so if you're getting into calling them snakes, uh, I haven't really seen them called gold diggers necessarily, but like snakes and ring chasers, I think, yeah, everyone's a fucking ring chaser. Why else are you in basketball? I mean, to if you want to be honest, hey, I want to score a bunch of points, be the future player, just make a lot of money. I don't care about championships. More power to you. But on some level, everyone's ring chasing. So to frame it that way is definitely disingenuous. But I will say there is probably some merit to the idea that certain championships mean more and were definitely more difficult than others. And when you leave teams or get traded from teams to team up with other superstars, those circumstances are inherently if not appreciably more favorable than had you stayed in one place and gone through just this extended cycle of roster churn of window churn having to win within a different window than than creating your own elsewhere and there are different levels to it where if you just get traded and there's only one star there all right like is like that doesn't seem as big of a deal anymore And maybe you've set the stage for other stars to come, like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving kind of teaming up and just going to Brooklyn. That's different than Kevin Durant joining the Warriors, what they were trying to do in Brooklyn, and then they go out and get James Harden. That was actually harder to do than what happened with Golden State and Kevin Durant. There's just different levels to everything. Now, what I will say is I do think that collectively, while the rings discourse hasn't necessarily changed, we're we're a little bit more warmer or understanding of players who do this, do what Kevin Durant did um than we were in the past. Now, does that have more to do with people are a fan of the league and the players um, more so than a specific team? Does that go into it? It does feel like there has been a drive for behind player empowerment, which is really superstar empowerment when you act actively think about it. And so you're okay with players mate. Let's use the Damian Lillard trade request or demand as an example, where there were people in inside Miami, of course, but also inside Portland, outside Portland, outside Miami who thought, yeah, the Blazers do owe it to Dame to just send him where he wants. And so you have a player making a one-team trade request at that point, ultimately doesn't go there. But there were people who not only were okay with Damian Lillard requesting a trade or demanding a trade because of how much time he spent in Portland. It clearly wasn't going to happen, um, but they were okay with the, the actual one team or the limited list. And we've become more accepting of players having lists or being we've been more accepting of, well, they have one or two years left on their deal. They have the leverage to force their way out if they want. And so I don't think that maneuver is viewed as negatively as it was years ago because we're just so maybe we're numb or we've grown to expect so much more player movement um, than we did, you know, before basically before the LeBron decision. Um, And even like, maybe like there was the whole Celtics getting KG and Ray Allen, but ever since LeBron left Cleveland the first time, it feels like we're more numb to player movement, more used to it. We expect it. And so we're more okay with these things. Does it change the way, are we then going to turn around and critique these players or Trying to diminish or take away, detract from their legacies. uh, A lot of that stuff is still going to come to bear because LeBron hasn't retired yet. Kevin Durant hasn't retired yet. So there's definitely a discrepancy in the way that it is framed. Um, But you seldom, I will say, it is to me harder as a as a front office to build up a contender as it is for a player to just leave and start a new to join forces with an incumbent one or just team up with bigger names elsewhere but again and i'm stepping on the toes of my own point here it's also hard to live through seven eight nine years of not winning a title of being the face of of not just the franchise but of criticism for not winning that title and you've now earned your right to go into free agency we should all accept that but i do think there is a, a like a. I do think there is a level of well, we can analyze like what those titles mean or what was actually easier, or what was harder, and I think the bigger discrepancy is when it comes to, you know, like if we're gonna talk about payrolls, for instance, when we call players overpaid, that's where it feels like fans, media members, people who cover the league might be more conditioned to. Well, we're gonna celebrate that. Let Nasri, let's say, wow, the Timberwolves, that was highway robbery. That contract. And it's like, well, that's great. But if Nas Reed had gotten paid more, um, yeah, you criticize the Timberwolves, but Nas Reed is the one that's tied to that contract more than the Timberwolves are. And so they kind of skate under that a little bit. I feel like there's more of a tendency to side or that there's not just more of a tendency, but it's it, it might be – I don't want to use the word valid because this question is valid from Rubik's Gal. Um, There's I have more of an issue where it's, well, let's celebrate teams ducking the luxury tax. Let's celebrate them getting players at a discount, Um, but we're going to go around. and We've had this discussion on this podcast about Tobias Harris. like He's sort of the root of stuff that's wrong in Philly or their lack of maneuverability on the trade market because he makes so much money. The Sixers offer him that contract. That's not on him, and he's a really good player, and we don't need to tie him to his pay grade, and yet we are more inclined to associate him with his pay grade than we just are looking at what he's doing in a vacuum on the court. As a useful player, that's the stuff I would take issue with more than yes. If you're out there and you're calling players cowards because they left the Thunder to go to the Warriors, uh, I would call Kevin Durant an opportunist. <laughs> like, that's just that's what a lot of people are in their careers that they're going to be opportunists, not mer- like that doesn't make him a mercenary. Um, so like, and look, I mean, the Kevin Durant situation too is there's something about he signs an extension to stay with Brooklyn tries to get out, they say no, but then they agree to trade him later. That That's going to rub some people the wrong way. The Nets are not blameless in that, but what he did to get to Phoenix is just like, that's a lot easier than, well, I left in free agency and toughed it out with the Nets and didn't sign an extension or get my financial security. Good, He made the smart play for himself, but I, I think that this, this discussion, we're absolutely right that the – as when you are rooting for a team, and I think this is the that's the genesis of siding with the front office or by extension billionaire team owners caring about the payrolls, the contracts, the luxury taxes, is you're not rooting for the player specifically. If you're if you're a Nas Reed fan, a Tobias Harris fan, you wa- you should want them to just get paid as much money as possible while playing as well as possible, regardless of what results turn in or what that does to the team's flexibility. But when you actively root for a team, uh, you are going to side with that team. And so part of that is fandom. Now, when you're looking at it from the Lee Y perspective, where I'm neither a Warriors nor a Thunder fan, I'm sitting there calling Kevin Durant a coward, uh, and he screwed over the Thunder, this and that, they didn't get anything for his departure. Then yeah, like that, like that shit is that shit is cringy. Um, but I do think it's a fair discussion. It's I don't think it makes Kevin Durant, he's not any less great because of what he did. If you're trying to look at the level of difficulty on those titles or what those titles mean relative to Steph having won while staying in Golden State um, his in th- for his entire career to this point, to through navigating through the thin, um, through the thick and thin or whatever, to get to this point, like, that's that's objective. What Steph did is objectively harder than what Kevin Durant did. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I'm not saying that Rubik's Gowler or anyone else said that. What Kevin Durant did is just as valuable as what Steph did. Um, some of the commentary around it, though, I'd absolutely agree is just, it's cringy as fuck. And just to call them cowards... Um, to call them ring chasers, it's like, is that really it's not? Like, is it? No, it's not. Like that—that's kind of the point. Of, we want players to care about winning. That's the point of this entire fucking thing. The problem is, is that so many people, I argue, most people, not only want players to win, they want them to win while dealing with a, a ton of adversity. And you've windowed down the amount of adversity by going from a situation like what was going on at OKC, as good as they were, by the way, they were—they were championship contender. They almost beat that Warriors team that Kevin Durant went ahead and joined. Um, but like, we want it to be hard. We want to see the failure rather than go somewhere and look, get, not that what Kevin Durant did in Brooklyn was a failure, but for different reasons, but like in Golden State, he went there and they just won. And so that's why issues like that are going to be diluted. I will say, I really do feel like the trade demand discourse has changed though. I fell on the, I'm like somewhere in between. I know hot takey where it's, yeah, Dame has the right to request a trade, it's the Blazers right to send him wherever they want um, or not to trade him. He signed a contract there. Like that's just the reality of the NBA. Uh, and I think that if you want to give lists, that's fine. And if you want to go through pre-agency where you have one or two years left in your deal, that's fine. You got to give more than one team as a list. So to not try and manipulate your value that way. I would side with that. But again, that's the players and their agents and their their camps, right? to No, we're going to, we want to be where we want to be. Um, we're going to try and orchestrate our way there, my straw way there. And I understand that, but it's, if you really want to get to one place and maybe don't sign a contract and do what Kevin Durant didn't just leave, go sign with them, uh, could do an entire podcast podcast series on that Rubik's girl, Ru- Rubik's Scals All right. Great Um, let's begin with, let's begin with this one from Austin. Uh, can you do a quick clarification on the differences of hitting the cap versus tax versus second apron and what the consequences and pros of staying under going over each are, um, hitting the salary cap doesn't really mean anything. It just means that you're capped out and you, if you want to sign a player, uh, you have to use an exception or you have minimums to offer. Basically. Um, if you go into the tax, those exceptions if you're looking at the mid level if you're in the tax your exceptions going to be smaller now what's interesting this year is the first apron or moving forward the first apron of the tax which i think is like 7 million above the luxury tax you are now going to be limited in different ways this year we saw if you wanted to sign someone on the buyout market they had to be making less than the non-taxpayer's mid level exception um, for you to sign them whereas it didn't matter so for an example if Kyle Kyle Lowry brokered a buyout with the Charlotte Hornets. Um, He wouldn't have been able to go and sign with the Los Angeles Clippers because they were so far. They were there in the second apron, but they were past the first apron of the luxury tax. Um, But he could sign with the Sixers because they were, I mean, they were under, they got under the tax, but they also, did they get under the tax? Yeah, I think they got under the tax, but they were also, they were under the first apron. So he was able to go sign, even though he was making more than the non-taxpayer mid-level. Um, There are going to be, I think, more limitations imposed on the first apron as we kind of move forward. Um, The salary matching gets a little bit tougher. It's the second apron is a big one. And so these are all the things that have already started being phased in and they will be continued. Some of them will continue to be phased in. So I'll list off some of the more punitive things. And this one, so next season right now, the second apron is set at about 190 million. It's normally supposed to be like between 17 and 18 million above the, the first apron and so you have the luxury tax which is that's your you know that's your hard cap like that that's your or your first apron oh my god excuse me it's basically your, it's also like kind of your hard cap it's like you can't if you're over the first apron you're not going to be able to do um acquire players via via sign and trade you need to stay under that if you're going to um if you're going to make a sign and trade so like that's kind of your your hard cap with some other limitations baked in now now the second apron which is again, 17, to, just look at the the first apron from now on. If you don't want to know the exact number and then add 17, $18 million to that, that's your second apron. If you are in the second apron, you will no longer be able to use your taxpayers mid-level exception. So you already had a smaller exception to begin with, and now you can no longer use, use it. Um, if you remain in the second apron, three out of five seasons, your first round pick will automatically move to the end of the round, beginning the very next season. That's going to be something to monitor with a team like the Clippers, um, the Warriors. It's like a it's like a different form of the re- repeater tax, basically, except it comes in the form of fucking with your draft picks. Um, first round picks seven years out now, if you're in the second apron. Um, that's a valuable asset, by the way, for like if that's how you acquire players when you're capped out in general is via trades or you get lucky on the minimum market. Um, you can no longer trade first round picks seven years out if you're in the, the second apron. That's going to start um next season as well. Uh, salaries, this begins this off season, they cannot be aggregated or combined to trade for a single player. So if you're in the second apron, you want to trade for two players, or you want to trade two players from one player. You can't do it now. That can't happen. Now this is look, teams can't use trade exceptions that were created a prior year. Expiration be damned. Trade exceptions are valuable because you can help create other exceptions. It allows you to effectively get a player without having to send anything out. Like that is the, they're created in multiplayer trades and non-simultaneous trades, but to not be able to use a trade exception, that also is going to kneecap these teams that are over the cap because those, again, exceptions, draft picks, those are your best way of acquiring talent once you're over the caps. When you're getting into the luxury tax and the different aprons, you're losing all these tools. Now you can also no longer send cash out in trades anymore. I think that starts this summer as well. Teams use those to buy draft picks. They use those to compensate other teams to take on players. They don't want to not be able to do that so that they can cut their tax bill to not be able to do that anymore is a big freaking deal. And so those limitations, these are real. And I think there might be a level of fuck it for a year or two. And we've seen teams kind of go down that road, Boston, maybe Clippers a little bit golden state for sure like it wouldn't surprise me if golden state even tries to get out of the second apron um, or the tax entirely before next season, just to ensure that they're not starting that, like that this clock on being in the, in the second apron, it's very expensive. And that's in addition to the tax bands aren't going to go up, but when you're in the second apron, basically as a tax team, this is a roundabout, but I'm rounding up and there's different tax bands right now. But if you're more than what is $20 million in the luxury tax, which is, you know, that's going to be second apron territory for the most part. Every dollar you spend is going to count for like $4 against like, so if you sign, you know, if, if you're $20 million of the luxury tax right now and you sign a player to a minimum contract and let's say the minimum salary, it's like the the veteran minimum comes out to like 2 million or something like that's going to cost you like actually 10 million because it's going to be $8 million in taxes on top of that $2 million player. That's like, so there's the financial, just the raw financial penalties. And I believe the tax bans are going to start going up. They're worse if you're a repeater, but I think the new tax bans kick in in 2025. If I'm not mistaken, I would have to clarify that. Um, there's a big difference right now though. The first apron kind of, whatever, definitely limiting a little bit. I I mean, the stuff with the, not being able to sign trades in a buyout market, you can't get players in a sign in trade, but that was kind of already true. Like with the, if you were going to come over the hard cap, um, like like that you always had the hard cap is my point that's what the first apron is functioning as um uh, however you're seeing and, and like the salary matching it's dipped a little bit to 110 percent um that's you know of, of the matching salary but like it's it's limiting it's the second apron that's a big deal so i hope hope i outlined um those limitations well enough for you austin uh other one ken can you clarify how buyouts work financially? Like when Westbrook was making $40 million for the Lakers, then went to the Clippers for 5 million. Is he just getting double paid? Does the new salary come off the team's old obligation to pay? So there's buyouts and then there's like being outright waived when you're outright waived. Um, if you sign a new deal, so there are two ways that this can happen. If you're waived, let's just, I'm going to use a $5 million player as an example. There will be prorations here. Um, these exceptions, they get prorated as the season goes on. If you, uh, let's use this first example, you waive a $10 million player. They are now on waivers. It wasn't a buyout. It's a $10 million player. That cap it is still $10 million. If there's a team that has the money to just claim his full salary, you will be that offsets. You will no longer be responsible for that players, that $10 million salary. However, if they clear waivers or let's say they clear waivers, they sign a different deal and let's say the team has the money or the exception to pay them $3 million. What you're basically, what you get to offset here is the difference between that $3 million, a minimum contract, and then you divide it by two. And so let's just say, I'm using made up numbers here. They signed that player for $3 million. And let's say his veteran minimum salary uh, would have been, let's just say it's like 1.6 million. So $3 million minus $1.6 million is $1.4 million. You slice that in half. That team saves the original team saves $700,000 in that. So the player is still making out well, but the team gets some of that money back. They're only going to get all of that money back. If that player is just picked up off waivers in general, meaning a team has the space to essentially claim that player's entire salary or that player which is the minimum salary to, to begin with. Buyouts are different because nothing is offset when they sign with a new team because, a pl- well, it can be, but typically as part of a buyout, let's say you're making $40 million and you agree with the Utah Jazz, who Russell Westbrook was on to give back $5 million as part of that buyout. And then you turn around and you sign with a team for $3 million. Let's say they have the money to give that to you. You don't offset any additional money for the Jazz or that other team because as part of the buyout, you agree to kind of waive that set off amount because the set off is coming in the form of I'm giving you back this five million dollars now. And so in most buyouts, there can be set off amounts. But in the case of Russell Westbrook, um, if you were making 40 million dollars and you agreed to a buyout you most likely already gave your money back. And so if you were making 40 million and you agree, yes, it's some of it's already been paid, but you agreed to give back 2 million to get the buyout. So your earnings are at 38 million for that year, but then you go sign somewhere because they have the money for 5 million. You're actually making 43 million that year. So you're coming out ahead and your team gets back. The original team gets back the 2 million that you gave them back. They don't get back anything else. That's kind of the difference between buyouts and being waived it's very convoluted and there's exceptions sometimes in a buyout you don't waive the set off amount but normally as part of giving back money like it probably happened with kyle lowry and the hornets is that they waive the right to get a set off amount and so whatever money he gave back in a buyout that's what his team gets back and even with the set off amount like it's not necessarily the like the player losing money they're always going to come out ahead or net net even um, good question though, for this time of year, since we are kind of in buyout season, it's already started to unfold. And then Austin finally also asked, what are the most slash least favorable teams to play for financially based on taxes, city cost of living, et cetera, assuming equal contracts. So the lowest income taxes in NBA, um, in NBA markets. So there are lower income taxes elsewhere, but in NBA markets are Texas, Florida, and Memphis. And so, in theory, if you're dealing with uh, contracts being equal and yet yeah, living expenses, they're going to be higher in if you're living in Miami, you want to live in South Beach than if you want to live in Texas. But like if you want to live in the heart of Dallas, that's going to change things. Memphis would probably be just the best. If you wanted to live in a hub while also having a low income rate, like you might make out better there. What's interesting, and I don't think they changed this the new CBA, is like NBA players pay taxes in every city that they provide a day of like services in. And so I wouldn't want to have to be the accountant filing those taxes because so when you're traveling on the road, that gets like sort of caked into where I believe okay, you could play for the heat, but like, and be in Florida and not be subject to a personal income tax there, but like you're going to have to pay the tax rates of other States for when you actually were working inside that state and traveling for games. Um, that's super complex, but overall, I would argue that the most favorable teams would then be the Memphis Grizzlies, and then there's the Houston Rockets, the Dallas Mavericks, the San Antonio Spurs, the Orlando Magic, and the Miami Heat would be the most favorable teams just from a raw when you're looking at income taxes. If you want to come out ahead in that, least favorable, it's I mean, California teams, the New York teams, like those have the highest income tax rates, I believe, of any other NBA market. Uh, So like those would be the least favorable ones, especially, I mean, you're looking at living expenses of most places. Yeah. If you play in Sacramento, you could live in some really nice, like you could like Sacramento is not going to be as expensive to live in as Los Angeles, so to speak, um, or San Francisco, if you want to live around there or New York city. Um, but like those are just going to be the teams financially. That's, I think the difference though is negligible enough. And these guys are making so much money. And you, when you're talking about it at one and a lot of guys cases, if you're making the mid level, you might not really have your pick of market. Now, if you're a superstar, you have your pick of market, and you're also getting in other endorsement deals. And so you would rather prioritize the convenience and location um, over them. Well, like my tax rate is going to be different. And so like, I think people could argue there's, you know, the, does Dallas Houston, San Antonio, Miami, even Orlando, I feel like should be a bigger destination among players um, than it is that they offer like sort of the best of of both worlds there. I mean, maybe is it or is it like a situation where you know this might appeal to players if it's Utah just because of the proximity to California and Vegas or Phoenix because of the proximity to California and Vegas, and you're not dealing with the same tax rates or or living expenses. So if we were taking all of that sort of into account, um, I still think if I had to pick, I think a Miami still comes out ahead. Um, but when you're trying to factor in cost of living in addition to the income taxes, I think like it might be the Suns. Like, is that is that the answer here? Uh, very interesting question. And I've always wondered how much that actually factors into player decision making. Maybe it actually does factor in if you're a mid-level player more and you have multiple mid-level offers, but let's say the roles are equal, the teams are equal, the contracts are equal, but it's like I could be in Phoenix or like do I want to be with the Knicks or the late? Like, no, maybe I'll just go to Phoenix and save like more money in net when it comes to taxes and living expenses. That's I'd be curious to see which players that factors into the most. Uh I have time for one more question here. Ooh, yeah, love this one. Shout out to Cosmic Raccoon, one of my favorite Discord handles by the way. Twofold question. Jalen Green will probably lose his starting spot in Houston before the end of this season. I don't know, let's see if the Rockets are healthy enough, Cosmic Raccoon, and I anticipate that will be the prelude to him being traded in the off season. So, two questions. What is the trade value of Jalen Green this off season assuming he's made into a bench player for the Rockets after the All-Star break as expected? And two, what would be a team you'd think should take a flyer on trying to salvage him? So looking at the trade value of Jalen Green, I honestly, I don't want to say I have no idea, but it's I would argue it's going to be lower than you think because he's extension eligible this offseason. And so you're giving up value to get him knowing that one, he's still an unproven, if not a, a distressed asset at this point. And two, you have to turn around and pay him. And so we talk about this when it comes to player veteran free agencies who've been in the league a while there's a risk there there's also factoring in his next contract into the equation uh, Jalen Green Jalen Green being less than a known commodity though makes it even harder to evaluate him in that context I would say I guess the best way to frame it before getting into like what would you give up for him is that had you op- like Could you have gotten OG Ananobi for Jalen Green? Like, Would the Raptors have preferred R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly just in a vacuum or Jalen Green for the OG Ananobi trade? I think they would have gone the R.J. Barrett-Emmanuel quickly route, and that's what quickly is extension eligible or was extension eligible. He's going to be a restricted free agent this summer, so you're dealing with his forthcoming payday as well. I think it would be reasonable to expect in a vacuum if there was a team that was willing to trade a lottery pick that wasn't like I mean this this draft is so I mean, but that would be honestly that would be part of though the, the Jalen Green um that'd be part of the Jalen Green trade value because of this draft because the quality of players up and down it would that impact the the level of draft pick that you would give up to where okay, I you're not getting a top five pick for Jalen Green. I don't even think you would get a top 10 pick. For him, like, I guess, like, our team is just very low on a Terrence Shannon or a Reed Shepard, and it's just blah. Um, so could you go that route? I think you could get a lottery pick between nine and 14, and then maybe like that as a top end asset or the prospect equivalent, and then one additional, just like, oh, we threw this first round pick or this first round type of prospect in. I don't think Jalen Green is on the level of like. I think Emmanuel quickly, honestly, at the time, probably had more trade value then than Jalen Green does now. And because we know that Emmanuel quickly, I know some people have been unimpressed with his defense. He's a really good off-ball defender, and he can navigate screens really well. Um, and there's been more of an even-keelness in net to his body of work on the offensive end, even though he struggled in the playoffs last year. He's also shown that he can adapt alongside other ball handlers, whereas like Jalen Green struggled with that a little bit, in a little bit, a lot of it in Houston this year. And if you're going to bill him as a bench player, whereas like Emmanuel quickly, it's, Oh, he's on the bench and should be a starter. If you're doing the reverse with Jalen green, it's going to dilute his value. And so the, look, these two questions are intertwined. I think what's also very complicated is the teams that I think should be taking a shot at Jalen green are not the teams that are going to give up the value for Jalen green that we're placing on it. I mean, yes, maybe there's just like, you know, if the spur, let's say the spurs as an example, end up with the ninth pick the the 12th pick from the Raptors which that would be the Raptors would went on a hell of a went on a hell of a like a a, a second season second stretch or stretch run streak if they end up with you know uh a top 18 record but if you're the Spurs you're rebuilding but you want Jalen Green you have the 12th pick and you still have your own pick and there's you have other first round picks coming down the pipeline would you give up that asset for Jalen Green maybe if you're let us you the wizard, certainly. Yeah. You give up the 2024, like second least favorable pick from OKC Houston, um, LAC that you have in your back pocket. But is that enough to get Jalen green? The types of teams that should maybe take flyers on him. You're not going to get their top of the line assets out of them. And so this feels very much like a scenario where it's, is Jalen green, either a throw in to a very large not a throw in, but he's attached to other first round picks to get the rockets a star. Or if you're trading Jalen and green independently, is it like a three team scenario or are you selling low? And it feels like if you're trading him independently, you're almost selling low. Um, I don't know what, like what is the three team independent scenario that made, like you're getting a rotation player. Who's not a star that would still amount to selling low. Whereas I think if you're trading him as part of a larger deal, you build either. Oh, look, the nets to Mikhail bridges as an example, you're getting Jalen and green, some of your own first and swaps back. Oh, that matters in in net combined, in the aggregate. or it's a scenario where, well, we want who might become available this summer? i don't I don't even want to throw a name out there, but we want, oh my God. why am i I, I need a good trade candidate. We want Zion Williamson, but the Pelicans just don't want Jalen Williams. and it's there's a third team that's coming in. And so they're going to give the Pelicans value for Jalen Green. So that Jalen Green can be moved to them as part of that value, like that—that that is a scenario you could see unfolding. But I think he's actually most likely to be moved as part of this macro straight-up deal, or it's his next team will find a third-party facilitator to come and get him to where they're okay selling low. That's what I was getting. I'm sorry to uh, stumbled through that. I was confusing myself with that scenario where it's if you're trading Jalen Green as part of a a star, an inbound star package, you're sending him to a team that maybe. They they could use him because they're clearly pivoting, but maybe they don't want to deal with his next contract. He's not their guy, but they could still get maybe it's two lower level first for um for him, and they're willing to accept that. I think I would place his value at one okay first round pick or prospect, and then maybe another like bottom 10 first round pick or the equivalent in prospect form. The upside is still there. When you look at his ability to create shots, his athleticism, the hope that he can kind of turn into this, just like the hybrid between of Devin Booker and Zach Levine, feels like that ship is sailed. But skewing towards one of them, where do you get Devin Booker's passing feel um, or feel for taking the right shots, or you just get Zach Levine's shooting and um, raw explosion and ability to play off others? I, there's there's hope for him there, um, and if you're a team to buy into that, but it's just like now you run into. Let's talk about the teams that should go after Jalen Green. We know Detroit was interested in Zach Levine. Does that also mean that they should be interested in Jalen Green? Maybe, but because Zach Levine, when healthy, is more of a proven commodity, you're not good. Like, Would the Pistons have been willing to give up one of their own future first for Zach Levine? I have no idea. Would you have looked at giving up Jaden Ivey for Zach Levine? Again, I wouldn't have. I have no idea, though. You're certainly not getting that for Jalen Green from that team. It's even the Wizards. Yeah, they'll trade you one of like, that lower-level first-round pick that they now have, but you're not going to get Bilal Kulbali. Uh, You're not going to get... Um, you're not going to get any of Washington's own future picks unless they're like, they'll be pre- like protected until kingdom come. They might never convey. And so now you need to get in an instance of, well, can we spot any teams that, because like even Toronto, he'd be very interesting in Toronto, but it's like Toronto really shouldn't be giving away any of their own future first. At this point, they already have one, even in the Spurs without knowing how good they are. You could protect it. Like if you want a Toronto, 2026 first round pick, but they're going to, lottery protected does that do it for you they're a team though that i would at least you know investigate washington already has jordan pool but jalen green is is exponentially better so there would be a team that could i wouldn't mind him taking a flyer there i could just see if the cost was low enough and like and they do kind of need i've said it like someone else who can give you some jiggle and joggle on the ball in addition to spacing the floor and playing off others like if okc just came in with like two or three whatever first round picks and took the flyer on jalen green maybe it's as part of getting out of a Josh giddy experience. Um, it would be very out of character, but I mean, him within that defensive ecosystem, and then you're all of a sudden the third option. Um, how do you adjust to that? It's not an Oklahoma City Thunder move. Um It's not a Spurs move either. They're a team that could maybe use the flyer on him. Uh, I don't know why I'm like warming up to the idea of seeing him in in Detroit as we're sort of having this conversation. I feel like I need to maybe get off of that. Um, but like so what what do we have we have detroit we have washington Tor- i think i like the most in toronto i just don't know what they'd be willing to give up to get him um I don't, like utah no not really uh the uh, not the pelicans unless they're making a wholesale shift away from cjbi's eye on they don't they don't make a ton of sense either the nets would be a team that they should definitely investigate this like you've already fired your coach what's going on with sean marks I know that you have picks committed to Houston, but hey, maybe you get Jalen Green some of your own picks back and you're sending Mikael Bridges out and you do need like a another caps lock shot creator or I'd be, you need a caps lock shot creator. And Jalen Green profiles as that, like if you extrapolate his 90th percentile outcome, he profiles as that more than even a Mikael Bridges at the moment. Uh, there's some overlap with Cam Thomas, but Jalen Green, I trust him more kind of at the different levels, like the peak version of him. And he will be a better a better playmaker. I think you could also argue that he's a better defender there as well. You know, what would be an interesting team. And it was just part of like, oh, things haven't gone according to plan. This might really fuck with our defense more than we want it to. But if the Rockets are looking to get older. Is there like some sort of other salaries need to be involved? But depending on what happens this year with the Bucks and Chris Middleton, like, do you kind of look at that? And like, oh, we kind of want like another scorer here, I guess. Giannis and Dame with Jalen Green, that makes that redundant. So perhaps not. I'm trying to think of like contending teams that might come in and be like, hey, we'll give you like first round. I could see Miami trying it. They already have Tyler Hero, um, but are you maybe making it as part of a separate deal or are you just like, hey, we we just need another like capstock score in here. We already have Terry Rozier, so you're not going to keep Hero, Rozier, Butler, and Jalen Green. Uh, If Jimmy Butler requests a trade after this season because you flame out of the playoffs, that might be a team that gets super interesting with Jalen Green. I could see Charlotte, I don't hate the idea of him, LaMelo, and Brandon Miller. I just don't know what you're getting for. I'm not trading Brandon Miller. I'd trade Mark Williams, but I don't know why Houston would want him. You're not going to give up your first-round pick, which is going to be so high. So that's where it gets super difficult. Um, I wouldn't hate him in Minnesota. I just don't know what you're giving up in that instance. Like I'm not giving up Jaden McDaniels for Jalen Green. Like That value. Maybe I'm lower on Jalen Green. Cosmic Raccoon or Rockets fans, anyone listening to this, can let me know. Uh, maybe I'm lower on Jalen green long-term than the consensus. But when you look at the year he's had his contract situation, I do think you'd be lucky to get the equivalent of like two real first round picks for him. And by real, I mean like not even just bottom five ones. And so could you get a lottery pick and then something else for him? And I, I'm used and I might consider going that route. If you believe that it's really going to benefit your ecosystem and you could then repackage those assets to go somewhere else. So if I had to pick favorite destinations and uh, I'm going to like there, there's a level of if we're just throwing trade assets out the window, I like Toronto and Brooklyn. The most Brooklyn might feel the most realistic because of just the setup with the trade assets where they have Mikael Bridges and Jalen green plus other stuff from Mikael Bridges continues to make a lot of sense. Would the bulls make sense if they want to move on from Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan is going to leave in free agency. That could be something to look at just to take a flyer. What do you give up for him then? I don't know. Does Houston want Zach Levine? I mean, Their defense has slipped, but that's because, I mean, by the way, what's going on with Atari's and lower left leg injury? There's been, he's missed a ton of time, hasn't played since January 1st. Um, We've seen the defense slip since he's been out, and they've dealt with other injuries, including the Fred Van Fleet. Something's weird's just going on. We even had Ime Udoka said that uh, he, what was the word he used? Fabricated the amount of pain he was in. Uh, Players will do that. I'm hoping that the Rockets have a better. Understanding of this injury. We know he had the stress reaction in this leg in the preseason, so he's working his way from that. I hope they have a better hold on it behind the scenes than they do front and center because publicly it was he was returning to practice. I think it was reported like January 31st or February 1st. And then there was the report like the other day that he has not even yet been cleared to play. And so now that's three weeks. I'm recording this more than three weeks after that initial report that he's nearing a return. I want him to come back. He's a really fun player to watch and super valuable to what the Rockets do. Uh, digressing on that but jalen green in orlando as sort of just like fitting their timeline uh, doesn't make as much as anthony simons just yet they have the defensive ecosystem to insulate him they could actually kind of stand for him to freelance like maybe where the rockets want him to be a little bit more structured they could probably orlando could probably use his freelancing Um, i don't hate orlando i like orlando and brooklyn might be my kind of favorites here and if there was just like a really outside the box one Sign me up. Like, like, can OKC just reboot his value with Jalen Williams, Shea alexander and Chet Holmgren? And then you also, you can play Jalen Green with Casey Wallace, I don't care, or Lou Dort. Uh, would you give up Lou Dort for Jalen Williams in a vacuum? Like, could you even get Lou Dort for Jalen Williams right now? I'm not, in a vacuum. I'm not saying the Thunder would do that. I don't know. I don't know. You have to let me know if you'd like any other. I know the Kings were looking for another shot creator, and I guess if, do they get bored that train if Malik Monk leaves in free agency? I mm, I don't know. I don't love it. The Grizzlies don't need him. The Blazers certainly don't need him if they're going to hang on to Simons and they have Sharp and Scoot. He's just not a Spurs player, even though they could probably use. If he was more of a facilitator, he'd be interesting. If Minnesota could get him, I mean, they're going to have a pick, in theory, as a player to trade this year. And like if you could get him for that and Nas Reed, do you consider it? probably not they didn't want Timberwolves fans were mad at me because i uh proposed nas reed and salary to get malcolm Brogdon. they didn't like that Uh, so maybe you're not going that much but like is houston sending out something a little but he could be interesting in minnesota just as like they need someone who can get in there get up threes i think they could use another like perimeter shot creator he's just not good enough i think to say hey nas reed might be my sixth man of the year right now so i get like Plus a first round pick, like that might be the type of package where if it was just trading Jalen Green independently, that might be the best you could do. Is did we get Lou Dort? Did we get Nas in a first? And we also had to send out something in addition to Jalen Green. I think that's where I'm at when you look at kind of his contract situation. And the Wolves aren't going to do that because they're giving away two cost controlled assets for someone who's about to make probably more of a boatload of money. I'd really like to see him in Toronto if trade assets weren't an issue. I think Brooklyn feels more more realistic there. Hopefully that answers your question. Cosmic raccoon. This was a fun mini moderate mailbag. We'll have to get to a point where we do a larger one. Maybe grant and I, if we can get enough questions and I'm okay. Going to Twitter at points, but if we can get enough questions to do Eastern and Western conference ones, we'll split them up maybe week by week or do two in a week. Like let's tackle questions for, for every team. Um, you could throw those mailbag questions to us. If you have questions specific to a player or team, and we could sort them, uh, email at at gmail.com. You can get at us in discord, join our discord follow us on the socials those are in the podcast and youtube descriptions uh, please sub if you haven't already hit the sub on youtube like subscribe tell people about us we really could use some ratings and reviews on apple and spotify um, to help drive us up the charts those help us out i think more than a lot of people know appreciate the support from every single one of you as always and until next time i leave with a shout out to the one the only the indelible the legendary the one who does have more trade value than jalen green even though he's not currently on an nba team Frank Elon